the Apostle Paul said, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul told Timothy, I, I intend to come and see you soon, but if I don't get there soon, I wrote this epistle to tell you how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so this second assembly, we want to take up a subject to help make sure that we are all behaving ourselves properly in the house of God and that we are acting like the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We want to defend and practice and follow the truth as closely as the Lord will show it to us. Amen. You may open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We opened with a verse of Scripture a few minutes ago from 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul told Timothy that the reason he had written that pastoral epistle was for Timothy to know how to behave himself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Our goal, and it should be a very sober and a very committed goal of ours, is to follow the truth as closely as we can as the Lord shows us the New Testament pattern for a church. We've recently had church discipline in excluding some sinners, and we need this review. Most of this material and much more detail is available in an outline called Church Discipline on the website. And it was just a little while ago that I preached a review message 16 months ago on 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. But we have some new members, and we forget. So for those two reasons... I want to cover this again. We have to steer between the ditch of compromise where the sentimental tend to roam and the ditch of cruelty where the self-righteous like to roam. We want to go right down the middle of the road of righteousness, right down the middle of the highway of holiness, right down the middle of the way of understanding. Because if we wander out of the way of understanding, we shall remain in the congregation of the dead. Amen. We do not want that. I want the, the yellow line under my feet. You know what I mean by that? Every road has a crown in it for the water to run into the two ditches. Let others go to the two ditches. We want to go down the center of that road on the yellow line. The crown of the road. Lord Show us the crown, and we will walk therein. You cannot improve upon the Word of God by being gentler or harsher than Scripture. More conservative than Scripture is self-righteous Phariseeism. God hates it. Gentle compromise is lasciviousness. God hates it. He wants us to follow His Word exactly. You cannot improve upon God's Word. So thus saith the Lord in this matter of how we treat excluded brethren and in every matter. We want to follow Scripture. At each point in our church life or our personal lives, we want to carefully consider what does the Bible tell me to do in this situation. The highest probability of success. And we do have success as our goal. And what is that success? The conversion of sinners. The probability of success is not enhanced by taking matters into our own hands and adding to or taking away from the Word of God, but doing it exactly as He's told us. We don't want to add to or take away from His Word, neither do we want to turn to the left hand nor the right hand. We have some wonderful results of church discipline, the way we understand the Bible to teach it, sitting in this church. We are thankful for those. We bless the God of heaven for them. His methods work. Now that does not prove a doctrine's validity. Only the Bible can prove validity. Results don't prove doctrine. Results may confirm doctrine. They may excite us and please us. And we may be thankful for them. But only the Bible can prove doctrine. We want to 
Prove all things and hold fast that which is good by looking at the Scriptures. We want our children to have a clear image that God hates sin, sin is terrible, it will not be tolerated, and it brings pain and punishment. So we've got to show that, and we're going to show it by following the Bible. I hope that most of you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 last evening. We have read it before. I don't think I need to read it in its entirety to you. You'd probably get lost. Let me take it apart in its few sections. What is exclusion? Let's remind ourselves. It is publicly identifying a sinner. Turning him over to God's judgment by Satan. Putting him out of the church membership. Ending his access to the Lord's table with the rest of us. And ending our socializing with that person. By unanimous corporate decision of a church. And it's all taught in 1 Corinthians 5. The first two verses teach us to publicly identify a sinner and his sin. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. There is the identification of the sinner and his sin. We have a man, he, sleeping with his father's wife, given to us in two verses. We have marked a man. We have marked a man and we have told his sin. And the whole church now knows about it that it needs to be dealt with. That's the first step. Right here, 1 Corinthians 5. You mark, you note, and identify a person and their sin. The second section is verses 3 through 5. For I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That is our goal. And it is stated quickly that the goal is salvation. The New Testament is remedial. Do you understand that word? The New Testament is looking to recover. The Old Testament had nothing of that. The Old Testament puts you to death. What would have happened to this fornicator in the Old Testament? There was no remedial situation for him. There was no grace. There was no mercy. Death. Thine eye shall not pity, nor shall you spare. The adulterer and the adulteress, they both shall be put to death. The New Testament is remedial, and here we have it given to us. The second thing we do after identifying the sin and the sinner is to turn them over in the name and power of the Lord Jesus Christ to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That we do not believe that is their body. Because this man was brought back in without any damage to his body. We believe that's the sinful lust in his flesh. That we turn them over to Satan for God to chasten, bruise, and bring that person to a place of repentance. It's for recovery. This is the the second thing that we are supposed to do. Turn them over to Satan for their flesh to be destroyed by God judging them through Satan. Remember, Satan's goal is not to destroy flesh. Satan's goal is to pamper your flesh and to help you obey the flesh. But it's God's use of Satan. We turn them over to the Lord who judges by the appropriate use of Satan. Satan is never out by his own choice to help us, to save us, to save our souls for the day of the Lord Jesus. But the Lord uses him that way. The Lord is able to do that. We come to verses 6 through 8. And it's the third thing we do when we exclude someone. And that is we cut them off from the Lord's table, which is the essential place of church membership. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's the third section, three verses, 
We protect the Lord's table because the Lord has unleavened us by taking away our sins through Jesus Christ, the perfect Passover lamb and the perfect fulfillment of the Passover. And he wants us to keep the feast the same way without the leaven of malice and wickedness. So the third thing we do is clean up the Lord's table by cutting a person off from that table, which is taking them out of our membership. Because the membership of a church, the real membership of a church is right at that table. That's where it's seen, where we all partake of one bread. That is where the unity of the body is. It is not in a building. It is not in an assembly. There are sitting in this assembly right now about one-third of the people here, or one-quarter of them, are not members with us. They are not among us at the Lord's table. They are not among us in the bond the Holy Spirit has made of all of us as church members. The focal point is at the Lord's table, and we're to keep it clean in the way that we just read. Let's go to the next thing that exclusion does. 9 through 11. It cuts off ordinary socializing. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, know not to eat. This is socializing. Paul said, I wrote you an epistle and told you not to socialize unnecessarily with the fornicators of this world. But I didn't mean it as an absolute rule. Otherwise, you'd have to go out of the world because we got to go work with these people. He was not correcting any false idea at Corinth that they would have the Lord's Supper with the fornicators of this world. He was correcting their unnecessary friendship and socializing and love of the world, which is evidenced by accompanying with them, socializing with them, eating with them, having meals. Because it's at meals where we show our fellowship, friendship, love, and affection for one another. And that was to be cut off. We have made progress through 11 verses. The first thing, identify the sin in the sinner. Second thing, turn them over to God to judge through Satan for the destruction of their sinful flesh. Third thing, cut them off from the Lord's table, which is the real essence of our membership. Fourth thing, no socializing with them. Not to eat meals with them. Summing it up, Paul put it this way in verses 11 and 12. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? The word also is there because we have two categories of people. Those in the world that are fornicators and those in the church. Sometimes they're going to end up being fornicators. A brother that is called a fornicator. We've got two categories of people. Those in the church that come and sit at that table and that are part of the body the Holy Spirit has united together and those that are not part of the church. Body that the Holy Spirit has united together. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Paul said, it is your job to judge those that are within. I don't really have the right to write an epistle that says much about those that are outside the church. I wrote this epistle for you that are in the church. You have a job to judge them that are within the church. When you came together and covenanted together as a church, you all made commitments in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you were going to live according to His gospel and that if you did not, you would be put out and not allowed to come to that table or be a member of that church. Now therefore, therefore, therefore is very helpful to understand verse 12. Verse 12 is not introducing anything new. It's not adding anything. Paul is just saying, I've explained four things that need to be done. Now do it. And it's called putting that person out. God will judge them on the outside. You're responsible for judging them on the inside. Now put them out. The New Testament has never had a church called a building. The New Testament has never had a church called an assembly. The only church there is in the New Testament is the temple of the Holy Ghost, and it is invisible to human eyes. It is the bond that we all have in the Holy Spirit. And that is what we put them out of. 
we have unbelievers come in among us and assemble with us and enter the doors of this building all the time. That is not the issue. It never is the issue in the New Testament. The issue is identifying them as a sinner, turning them over to Satan in God's judgment outside the, the body and bond of the Holy Spirit, where their flesh can be destroyed to save their spirit, cutting them off from the Lord's table, and cutting them off from the friendly, loving, affection, and comfort of the body of Christ. All stated right here in 1 Corinthians 5. We are not changing a thing. This is what's always been taught to this church for over 20 years. Let's look at a few more expressions. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Oh, I hope that you understand 1 Corinthians 5. If you don't, there's an outline called church discipline. It's 66 pages long. It's full of case studies. It'll help you understand how we apply it. At the very end of that outline, there's a verse-by-verse exposition commentary of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Or you can go to our outline in 1 Corinthians 5, which I preached two or three years ago as we went through the book of Corinthians verse-by-verse. Matthew chapter 18. I just want to read three passages of Scripture and, and what more they tell us about church discipline. Matthew 18. Let me get the context here. I hope you remember it. Verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen and a publican. A heathen man and a publican, a worldling, cut them off from your ordinary socializing. They understood what that meant, a heathen man and a publican. Cut them off from the Lord's table. You know, it doesn't say withdraw yourself. It doesn't go into the explanation because that's given to us elsewhere. We're to compare spiritual things with spiritual. Do heathen men or publicans ever come into the house of God, meaning the building? Yes. Do they come in and assemble among us? Yes. Do we still treat them like heathen men and publicans? Yes. We treat them that way right here, and they do not get the full measure of our love, affection, and acceptance because they have not come to terms with us on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we make a a distinction. Now, some Sundays you might hardly notice it. But if you were to look through the week and look to see where the socializing is being done, it's being done among the body where they're not being treated that way. This is one of the Lord's statements. Let's go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Oh, we don't want to be too harsh. We don't want to be too gentle. We just want to be the way the Lord wants us to be. We want to be that because we want to please Him. We want to be that because the Bible tells us. And we want to follow the Bible. We want to be that way because that's the way of the highest success for saving someone. When we exclude someone, unless they're an obvious fool and scorner, and sometimes they're obvious fools and scorners, when they're not an obvious fool and scorner, our ambition and our prayers and our efforts are to see them recovered as quickly as possible. That flesh destroyed as quickly as possible. The Spirit brought to a place of full repentance where they clear themselves in the eyes of the whole church, not just the pastor, the whole church, and are brought right back into union with us, ordinary socializing with us, the Lord's table with us, and delivered from Satan and put into the the bond of the Holy Spirit that we have as a church together. Here's how Paul worded it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. His language is very comparable in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that he invokes. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye received of us. Make a difference and mark. Mark them and avoid them that are doing anything different than what we've taught you in the gospel. Withdraw yourselves from them. Where do we withdraw? Do we run and hide behind bushes because they're in the parking lot? Um, I just want you to think. 
Where do we withdraw from someone? We withdraw right here at this focal point. The identity of a church is at the Lord's table. That's the main identity of a church. That's where we withdraw from them. But we add to that the withdrawal from them in ordinary socializing. Because 1 Corinthians 5 taught us that. We turn them over. Because 1 Corinthians 5 taught us that. Here in verse 6, Paul's being brief because he's given the lengthy one in 1 Corinthians 5. Verse 14 of the same chapter. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. That is what exclusion is. Now I know there's another verse there and I, I will read it. Don't believe me, I'll read it. Note that man. Remember, we have to identify the sin and the sinner. Turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Cut them off from the Lord's table. Cut them off from ordinary socializing. Here we have number one, note that man. And number four, have no company with him that he may be ashamed. The goal of church discipline is to make the person ashamed. Now we've had the goal of keeping the Lord's table pure. 1 Corinthians 5. Our goal is to keep the Lord's table pure. We don't want to keep the feast with the leaven of malice and wickedness. We have that goal. But then we have the goal of saving that person, according to 1 Corinthians 5, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, that the Spirit will be brought to a place of full repentance, so that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, that person is repentant, and that sin is entirely under the blood of Christ, and they are living for Jesus Christ again. How we get there is partially described right here. They are to be ashamed. Now, we don't like to shame those that we have loved and fellowshiped with. But it doesn't matter what we like. We love God, we love His Word, and we love the brethren that we exclude. And because of that, we need to leave them ashamed. We do not have an option. You cannot improve upon the Word of God by shaming them less. Neither can you improve upon the Word of God by shaming them more. And we've been told, specifically in 1 Corinthians 5, which is the focal place where the most is said about church discipline, we identify them, we turn them over to Satan, we cut them off from the Lord's table, and we stop our ordinary socializing with them. The same kind of thing that we're tempted to do with the world that Paul says to cut off. You can't cut it off completely with the world because we have to live among them. But you can cut off your ordinary socializing with a brother that's a fornicator. Unless, of course, and we've been over this before, you are a family member. That doesn't nullify that relationship. Or if you are an employee or employer, you know, certain relationships are going to continue. But socializing would come to an end. These are, th- these are the passages of Scripture that tell us what we need to do. And here it tells us what the goal is. The goal is to create shame. God hates sin. Sin is against the Bible. Sin is against our religion. And when it occurs among us in a public way, we have to deal with it in such a way that it leaves that person shamed for their sin. And that is part of the cure, is to bring them to a place of repentance. When we withdraw from someone, or when we put someone out, or when we exclude And these are words sometimes we use, sometimes the Bible uses them. We are putting them out of the spiritual body of the church, not the physical. The physical in the New Testament means nothing. Jesus said, the Father seeks those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Our religion is an internal religion. And our real church, the real church of Greenville, is invisible right now. It is a bond that exists by the Holy Spirit that unites the members of this church together, after their mutual commitment to one another, the Holy Spirit unites them into a body. The Lord adds to the church daily such as should be saved. He puts them into the body. Those members that please Him. That's the church. The church is not a building, and the church is not an assembly. Our church is only two-thirds or three-quarters of this assembly. It's invisible. It's a spiritual thing. And the Lord takes in or puts out based on what we do as a church. Back there in Matthew 18, 18, where it said, if he won't hear the church, you know, if he won't hear the one brother, he won't hear the two or three witnesses, 
that are brought, and then he won't hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and publican. And it goes on right immediately to say this, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. When the church binds a sin or looses something from off a person, heaven responds by backing that up in the spiritual relationship we have as a church. Remember our example that we use for Matthew 18? You've borrowed a jigsaw from someone, and when you return it, you've torn the power cord off it, and we've gone through the whole process of getting a remedy for you. Even something as small as a power cord being ripped off a jigsaw, if the church says, Brother, that saw was given to you and we have witnesses in perfect condition. You need to buy a perfect jigsaw for, a brother, for the other brother. And if the man says, I won't do it, you know, there's not a verse in the Bible that says anything about a jigsaw power cord. But you know what? If the church says you do it, whatsoever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth is going to be loosed in heaven. Because even that small thing is a jigsaw. You are standing against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the pillar and ground of the truth. And it has made a judgment. Paul said, Are not the least of your members able to judge in these small things? And once you make that judgment, the Holy Spirit responds by binding that sin upon that person and holding them accountable for it. And when we put a person out, the Holy Spirit puts them out as well in a spiritual union that we have. They're no longer part of us. They're no longer eating and drinking of that same spirit that we are in our church relationship. And until a person joins us, they're not. Oh, they may very well be born again. And they may be walking with the Lord to a certain degree. But their spiritual union has not yet occurred until they come in. And it ends when we put them out. That is church membership. It's not an assembly. It's not your bottom on a pew. It's not coming through a door. That's Catholicism. That's looking at temples made with hands as a church. You know, we don't even like calling this place a church. What, 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 do, we, what do we call this place? It's our, it's our meeting house. Because this building isn't the church. And the assembly isn't the church. The church is the body of those that have committed themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, have been duly and properly baptized, and the Holy Spirit has added together into a body so that we have hands and eyes and feet all being motivated by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. There's all of 1 Corinthians 12 to tell you all about that. That the Lord puts in the body those that please Him. That doesn't mean He puts them in the assembly. That means He puts them in the unity of the one body that we are in Jesus Christ. And each church is one body in Jesus Christ made up of its members that have committed together to keep the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has added together into a living organism. We are not an organization. We are an organism. We are a living thing with the Holy Spirit of God among us. What happens when a church sins enough against the Lord Jesus Christ? He takes the candlestick away which leaves that church a carcass. That, that candlestick being representative of the Spirit of God in Revelations, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Look at Colossians chapter 4. I like this expression over here. Maybe this will help you. I, I hope you already understand. I hope I've preached enough on this in the past. I hope especially as we went through 1 Corinthians 12 a couple of years ago. For those of you that were here, you remember how the Holy Spirit... See, it's my spirit that operates my body. I have one body all tied together. And all of its parts are acting in harmony and agreement with one another. They care, about it. they care about each other. Let me tell you, if I get the flu, my whole body shuts down. If I hurt my back, everything else is willing to give up a day to help my back recover. A church is the same way. And the Lord made this comparison, not me. I have one spirit operating all the parts of my body. This church is not this building. It is not this assembly. It is those that have committed themselves to Jesus Christ, and there is one Spirit that ties all of them together. And that is what we always want to emphasize and honor. Look at this in Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. Paul is writing from Rome to the city of Colossae. And he says that he has there with him Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Now, Onesimus, 
Though he was in Rome, far from Colossae, he wasn't in the assembly at Colossae, but he was one of them. That's Onesimus. We come down to verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. Always laboring and so on. It goes on to describe him further. Here are two men that were part of that body in Colossae, but they weren't there. didn't matter whether they were in the building, and it didn't matter whether they were in the assembly. They were two of them. Two of that body in Colossae. You know, a church is a spiritual building. It's the temple of the Holy Ghost. And we can't fail to understand that. And that's an important part of our church discipline. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Marianne, I hope you'll remember this passage of Scripture from a long time ago. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says that each of us in our body are a temple of the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost dwells within us, and because the Holy Ghost dwells within each of us in our bodies, we should not take our bodies and join them to a harlot. 1 Corinthians 6. Because Jesus Christ has bought us body, soul, and spirit. But here in 1 Corinthians 3, it's not talking about our physical bodies. It's talking about the corporate body of the church. Verse 16. Know ye not. That's a plural number. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. That is not your body. That is the body of the church, because the whole context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is about being a wise master builder and a wise builder of building this church up with gold, silver, and precious stones instead of wood, hay, and stubble. Been over that before. I'm going to spend no more time there. You should be able to read that. If you understand context, there isn't a body mentioned in here except the body of the local church at Corinth, which was the temple of the living God. And it was a thing indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. How are excluded brethren to be treated? Second Thessalonians chapter, we've already been over the list. We, we mark them by name, we mark them by sin, we turn them over to Satan outside of the, the Holy Spirit union of our church, we keep them from the Lord's table, and we stop our ordinary socializing with them by no longer keeping company with them or eating with them. And if that's all done properly, that person will be ashamed. And the shame is not to hurt them to their destruction. The shame is to hurt them to their repentance. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and read that statement there again. How are we to treat excluded brethren? I've taken a great deal of time to try to remind you of what exclusion really is. You know, we don't hire bouncers in the New Testament church. There are two, there are two denominations that do. Do you know who they are? Mennonites and Jehovah's Witnesses. When they practice church discipline, they have a word for it called shunning. And you can just go online, type in Mennonite, type in shunning, and you can read all about it. They've made up their own little religion. You know, if a, if a husband is excluded and the wife isn't, they can no longer sleep together. They gotta eat separately. You know, they, they, they really, they really go the distance. Of course, they can't figure out baptism or a whole lot of other things. And they go around wearing gunny sacks. We don't have to follow them. We want to follow the Bible. Second Thessalonians chapter three. Here's what it tells us in verse 14. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. So we want to treat the brethren by the things that I've described in a way that would leave them ashamed. Sometimes that's going to call a degree of rudeness from you that you're not used to showing. But God hates sin. The sovereign God that I preached about this morning hates sin. Holiness becometh thy house, O Lord, forever. So what it requires is a degree of rudeness to leave that person ashamed by avoiding them, by not companying with them. Now, do we treat them like an enemy? Do we cut them off like the Mennonites do? Do we cut them off like Jehovah's Witnesses do? No, because the very next verse puts a stop on that and brings us back to a place of Bible, Scriptural, Holy Spirit balance. And that's the only balance we want. 
We don't want to balance our feelings. We want to balance the feelings of God. Verse 15 says, Yet, in spite of noting Him and having no company with Him, that He may be ashamed, in spite of that, count Him not as an enemy, but admonish Him as a brother. That means there is still one positive thing left that you're to be doing toward that person. And it takes some courage. And it takes some thinking. And that's to walk up to them and instead of chit-chatting about the weather, if you chit-chat about the superficial things of life with an excluded person, you are sinning against the God of heaven, you're breaking the Bible, and you are setting that person back from being recovered. They need to be made ashamed. They get comfort from the fact that you're coming around and comforting them with with your little chit-chat conversations. If you want to have a conversation, bring some verses of Scripture to bear. Exhort the person to holiness. Warn the person about considering in any foolishness. Press them toward their duties. What does the word admonish mean? It means to put in mind of duties. That's what the word means. It means to put them in mind of their duties. And so instead of treating them like an enemy and totally avoiding them and despising them and having nothing to do with them, we still have something to do with them. Because they're still called a brother. They're still called a sister. They're just outside the communion, fellowship, and Holy Spirit bond of our church. And what are we supposed to do? Press them toward their duties. Take the Word of God and bring it to bear. If the crime is stealing, then press them with some verses that talk about stealing. Like Ephesians chapter 4. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him work with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. I'm giving you an example. That's what needs to be brought to bear. Admonish. Press. You want to bring them to a place of repentance. That's the goal. What a beautiful balance. I've heard the word balance so many times. These pragmatic, effeminate types. You, you ought to get in a conversation with somebody that believes in balance. Well, we now remember. Now remember, Jonathan, we need to stay balanced. Balanced with what? What? You're on one end of the teeter-totter and the Bible's on the other end? How do you stay balanced that way? I want, I want the Bible. And I only want the Bible. And I hope that you want the Bible. But look at the balance. Does God give us a balance? Yes. Note them. Have no company with them. And the goal is to make them ashamed. But don't go too far by treating them like an enemy. Like the flesh would treat an enemy. Admonish them as a brother because they still are a brother. They've been caught in their sin. And bring them to a place of repentance. Admonish them as a brother. Show some brotherly love toward them in the proper way. But it doesn't mean to say that you still love them. It doesn't mean to confirm your love toward them. Because that is not to be done yet. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If they're, if they're smart and know the Bible at all, if you're admonishing them in the name of the Lord and with the Word of the Lord, they know you're loving them in the way that the greatest love is shown. That is the greatest love. Leviticus 19:17. Thou shalt not in any wise hate thy brother, but thou shalt... I'm, I'm corrupting it a little bit. It's J.R. Crosby version of 2000. I'll read it to you. Forgive me. I'm sorry. I do not like... Messing up the pure Word of God. I was going to get it close, but that's not good enough. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. That is brotherly love. That is brotherly love. It's not hugging and kissing. It's not going around saying, I love you so much. I love you forever. That isn't brotherly love. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. If you let an excluded member go that hasn't shown himself to be a fool or a scorner, there's degrees. We've been over this before. If an excluded member shows that they're just a fool and a scorner, you do not have an obligation to waste your time chasing them. Because the Bible has other verses that come to bear. Thou shalt not rebuke a scorner. Because you get get yourself a blot, and they hate you for it, and they take your words and use them against you. You can test the waters from time to time. You can check about those that you might think to be a fool in a scorner and see if you might be able to go and try something again. But we're not talking about a person like that. We're talking about one 
that has made every profession that they are sorry for their sins and wants to be back forgiven of the Lord, forgiven of the church, and back communing with the church in the unity of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And always remember, 1 Corinthians 5 is putting the fornicator out. 2 Corinthians 2 is taking him back in. And we're thankful to God that we have both sides of the transaction. 2 Corinthians 2, 6. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment. It is a punishment. It's not less than a punishment. It has to be a punishment. God hates sin. This is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's table is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to be a punishment for sin. These are the Bible's words, not mine. We are sticking with the Word of God. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. See, it's the whole church. Paul told the whole church in 1 Corinthians 5, When ye come together with my Spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, do this and do that. And now they're undoing it. The whole church did it. The whole church inflicted this punishment because it was a congregational act. Pastors don't exclude. Churches exclude. Churches put out members. Churches take in members. Those are all church, congregational ordinances. Verse 7, So that contrarywise, contrarywise, contrary to the punishment that you were giving them, Now give them something else on the opposite side. Ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Notice that forgiveness, forgiveness is not something we give yet. Comfort is not something we give yet. These are not the rules of Johnny. These are the rules of the New Testament. You do not have a right to forgive yet. You do not have a right to comfort yet. It's a punishment by not being forgiven. It's a punishment by not being comforted. It's a punishment by being made ashamed by not being forgiven and being comforted. Are you with me on what the verses are saying to us? This brother was about to be brought back in because Paul said sufficient. He's been punished long enough. Paul made a ministerial judgment with his apostolic gift and discernment of spirit And he said, bring that guy back in. He's been out long enough. He's about to be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. The grief and his repentance, see, he's full of sorrow, godly sorrow. And that's what we want to see. We want to see sorrow and hatred for sin. We want to see cheerfulness and love of Christ and love of obeying the Bible and living a holy life. Contentment with everything God has given us. That's what we want to see. And Paul saw enough of it so that he said, contrary-wise to the way you haven't forgiven him, and that you haven't comforted him, now you can forgive him, now you can comfort him, now you can bring him back in to your church, to your socializing, to the Lord's table, to everything. Because he was worried that perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. That is when we see true repentance. That it is tearing them up. That they hate sin so much, they are going over the top to undo that sin. I'm going to go to the text that describes repentance in just a minute. Let's finish up this passage. Verse 8. Wherefore, wherefore, because I'm worried about this brother, because he's had sufficient punishment, because he could be swallowed up with grief, wherefore, I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. Confirm your love toward him. We take him back into our membership. We let them come back to the Lord's table. We beg the God of heaven by His Holy Spirit to unite them again with us. We take up socializing and fellowship with them over meals. We eat with them once again. The shame's gone. And here it is, both sides of the equation, First and Second Corinthians. This is what we want to do. Come to Second Corinthians chapter 7. This is what we're looking for. Remember that man had sorrow so much that it might swallow him up? Here's the kind of sorrow that we want to see. You want to see this in your children when they've sinned? You want to see this in your own heart when you've sinned? We want to see this in excluded brethren when they sin. I want to tell you something about this thing. In 2 Corinthians 7, 10, 11, I'm about to read to you. It is a gift from God. 
You can't stir it up. You can't buy it. And I can't give it to you. It's a hard thing to get a hold of. God has to give it. And that's why we want to pray that God will give it. It is a gift. Paul told Timothy, You can be apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. That is a sober passage of Scripture. That is 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. It says, if God peradventure. He doesn't owe any of us repentance. If He's given you repentance, you should bless the Most High God. He has reached forth His arm on your behalf. And no one has questioned that He has come down to someone as lowly as you to grant you repentance, to save you from the folly of your own sins. But here's what it looks like. 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. It's not repeated. It's not done over again. It's real. It sticks. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. They're sorry that they got caught. They're sorry that they're ashamed. But they're not sorry of the sin. For behold, this self-same thing, this is godly sorrow, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. Notice these expressions. What carefulness it wrought in you. And that's what we want to see. A person being very careful. (coughs) Taking care of every detail to undo their sin and look entirely different before the God of heaven. They're not doing it for a public show. They're doing it for the God of heaven who's examining their heart. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Oh, there's some hope in that word. That you can clear yourself. What clearing of yourselves. You're doing everything necessary to convince everyone that that sin is ancient history with you. Yea, what indignation. You are angry. Not at anyone but yourself. You are upset that you would have been such a fool to have flown in the face of the God of heaven and all of His mercy towards you and sin against Him. What indignation you have against sin and sinfulness. Yea, what fear. You are, you are full of the fear of God. You are full of the fear of ever going in that direction again. You hate what you did. You want to avoid it at all costs. Yea, what fear you have in yourselves of anything as terrible as sin. Yea, what vehement desire. You know, vehement is a word to describe something very hot. A hot, passionate desire to do what is right. And it's vis- these things are visible. Because this, these, are, these are extreme statements. This is not just an ordinary, yeah, I'm sorry. This is extreme. This is Zacchaeus jumping down out of a little sycamore tree and hearing a crowd say, that man's a thief and Jesus Christ is going home to have supper with him. And Zacchaeus saying, Lord, I give half my goods to feed the poor right now, half my balance sheet to feed the poor, and if I've wronged any man, I'll restore to him fourfold. Jesus said salvation's come to this house. Because that was, was that vehement desire? That was vehement desire. Half my balance sheet, just to cover in case they don't come and check me out, and I'll restore fourfold if I've wronged anyone. He was a publican. He was a tax collector. He had wronged lots of people. That's why the whole crowd was murmuring at him. But that, you know what Jesus said? Today salvation has come to this house. How long did it take him? Two years? A year? Six months? What vehement desire he had. Right here. I love this verse. You want to memorize a long verse? This is a long one for you. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Enthusiastic power and performance. Zeal. Jehu. He drove his chariot furiously. He was full of zeal. Jesus. It said when he made that scourge of of cords and drove the money changers out of the temple, it says, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Extreme efforts. Powerful efforts. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. You're going to make up for the sin. You're going to make up for it by doing everything right and by doing everything right with such passionate zeal, energy and power and performance. You obviously have cleared yourself. Look what the Apostle says about somebody that does this. In all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. In all things, you've approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. 
the Corinthian church was so full of sin when Paul wrote the first epistle. But look at what he described as godly sorrow. That verse right there is the standard that we have to hold ourselves to and excluded brethren to and our children to. That's real repentance. Just a simple little I'm sorry is not repentance. This is repentance right here. You go over the top. You go to extreme measures. Anything that is questionable, you blow it out, you hate it, you wouldn't even consider something that's questionable because that's not showing the revenge and the zeal and the fury that you want to show to clear yourself. That's what we're looking for. We do not run to the unscriptural excess of Mennonites or Jehovah's Witnesses and practice shunning the way they do. What I have just described to you is what we understand church discipline to be. Some toy with the idea that we ought to just throw them out of the assembly, make them sit at home until we we see repentance. But that isn't taught in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit knows the words for staying at home. And He knows those words in 1 Corinthians. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, He said, If any man be hungry, let him eat at home. He says, Let you eat at home and tarry one for another once you get to the assembly. He knows to describe about whether you're in an assembly or not in an assembly. He knows when He says... When you come together into one place. That's 1 Corinthians 11 as well. He knows about forsaking the assemblies. But there is no language like that used. And it would be totally counterproductive. And there would be no value in it. And it's not taught. The reason we don't do that is we want a repentant, excluded brother to be in our assemblies. Because they should be under the preaching of God's Word. And under the singing of God's Word which are some of the means to bring them to a place of repentance. We want them there. The within or without of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 5, 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, where it says, Them that are without God judgeth. We aren't talking about the walls of a building, and we're not talking about an assembly. Are you kidding? That, that is such a carnal view of the church to think that a church is these four walls, and that if you come in here, you're in the church, and those outside are are without. No, many times they come in, and they're within those four walls. But they're not within us. Because the only way you can get within us is to come and prostrate yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ to have entrance to the Lord Jesus Christ's table and His supper. And whether you're in this assembly doesn't mean you're within us. You're not within us until you've committed to be within us. And the Holy Spirit puts you within us by us accepting your application to be within us. That's what within and without is. It's not within or without a building. It's not within or without an assembly. It's within or without the spiritual body of the church. Now, when it says in verse 13, in the middle of that verse, it says, Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Therefore, remember, we've tried to learn a little simple rule of English. When we see the word therefore, a conclusion is being drawn. There is not new information. There is a conclusion. Therefore, I have given you 11, I've given you 12 verses telling you how to withdraw yourself from a sinning brother. Name them, identify the sin, turn them over to Satan, keep them from the Lord's table, no more ordinary socializing with them. Now I have said that in the power and name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now do it. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Without any further instruction, he just says, therefore, as a conclusion of what I've written in the first 12 verses, do it. Put them out. Over to Satan, away from the Lord's table, out of your ordinary fellowshipping. When we go to the recovery passage of 2 Corinthians 2, it doesn't say anything about letting them back in the doors, giving them a key, or letting them assemble with you. It does not say anything of that at all. It's all spiritual functions. Forgive them, comfort them, love them. That's why we stick there. That's why we've always stick there. And that's why all Baptists have always stuck there. The Old Testament. You know, sometimes we look at the Old Testament, we want to think that that's going to give us some light on the New Testament. But when it comes to New Testament church practice, unless Paul says there's something in the law to help us, there's nothing in the law to help us. What would have happened to this fornicator in the Old Testament? I've already said it. He'd have been stoned to death. There's nothing like that in Paul's mind at all. He wants to save this brother in the day of the Lord Jesus. He wants him to be admonished as a brother. 
Not admonished as someone who should be stoned to death. The Old Testament cannot help the New Testament. It's a bunch of beggarly and shadowy types. There was no remedial provision in the Old Testament at all for a person like this. It was death. Because that's the Old Testament. You want some mercy in your grace? It's in the New Testament. So we don't go to the Old Testament to find out anything like that. Remember, I I wish you can remember this distinction. We call this building a church. We call this assembly going to church. But yet the real church is the body of believers united by the Holy Spirit. You know, in one place in in the book of Acts it says robbers of churches. Now is that robbers of the spiritual union of the church? The assembly of the church or the building? Robbers of churches. That's men that went around robbing temples and robbing church buildings. When the Bible says a woman ought not to speak in the church, what does that mean? She shouldn't speak in this building? She shouldn't speak in the spiritual union of the church? Or she shouldn't speak in the assembly of the church? Do you know what we're doing right now? We're trying to rightly divide the word of truth or we end up in terrible confusion. Three categories, three ways of looking at the church. When we say a woman shouldn't speak in the church, we understand that to mean in the assembly of the church. When it says robbers of churches, we understand that in a certain way. When we read about churches in other statements, we know that it means the spiritual union of that church, separate from any heathen and publicans that might be sitting among them, visitors that might be sitting among them, or children that are sitting among us that are not yet part of us. 1 Corinthians 10. I'm about done, and I'm sorry it's been so long. You're showing great graciousness, great kindness and love, and God will remember it in the great day that's coming soon for putting up with me for so long. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in that you've done it to the least of one of these his brethren. I just want us to be on the same page, thinking the same thing, having the same judgment, being of one heart and of one mind in this matter. And I want anyone among us that's been excluded from our fellowship to be recovered as soon as possible. And that person is recovered by making them ashamed, by giving them a punishment, by not chit-chatting with them, not socializing with them, having to reach down into your little soul and find a little bit of rudeness to treat them rudely until they show that repentance that I just described for you all. That's what we're looking for. And we want to see it happen. Then I praise the God of heaven, and I hope that all of you are with me for the ones in this assembly right now, the ones in the unity of this church by the Holy Spirit who have been put out before and saved by this very method. And half of you don't even know who they are. And that's the glory of the church. <clears throat> Praise the God of heaven. I love His Word. First Corinthians 10, verse 15. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. There is the definition of the church, the way we're looking at it. There's no walls and there's no assembly. It's the focal point at the Lord's table. When we come into a building and then we sit among people in an assembly, there is still a further defining point of the church. It's right there. It's the cup of blessing which we bless, the bread which we break, And the partaking of that one bread. There's one kind of bread we have down here. We all partake of it. And that shows our church relationship one to another. And that's how we withdraw. We do not serve that to someone that we have put out from among us. They are no longer among us by the spiritual union of the church. They are outside it. They can still be sitting in here. They can still come through the doors. It has nothing to do with it. That is not the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is a spiritual organism called the body. Of Christ. Excluded brethren need the preaching of God's word and shame at the Lord's table more than anyone. We want them sitting, we want them ashamed when it comes to the time of the Lord's table. We want them to hear the preaching of God's word. We want them to hear the shouting of Amen around them. We want them to hear the singing and realize they're not part of us because of their sins so that they're ashamed. They're not to be treated as an enemy. We don't shun them like an enemy. We treat them like a brother. Even though we would let enemies or heathens and publicans walk right into this assembly and sit anywhere they wanted to, we do not do that. I mean, even we allow that, and we are supposed to treat them like a heathen man and a publican. 
This way the whole church gets to take part in their repentance and the fruits of godliness. What is restoration? Restoration is when someone by 2 Corinthians 7, 10, 11 shows that they hate what they did, they love the holy God of the Bible, and they want to be restored among us, and they do it with great zeal and passion. It's not a halfway measure. It is a great measure. And it's something we want to pray for for everyone that's been excluded from our church because it is not something you can work up. God must give it. The Bible tells us that Paul said sufficient to such a man was his punishment. Paul said he's about to be overwhelmed by his grief. We'll know when that takes place. We've seen it before, and hopefully we'll see it again. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word, which is to remind us that we have a solemn duty. It may not be the most pleasant thing that you've done, but if you love the Word of God and if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that God hates sin. It cannot be tolerated in His church. And if we truly, if we truly want to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints in these perilous times, then we want to have church discipline that sticks and practices it God's way. Therefore, identify by name and sin, turn over to the devil, cut off from the Lord's table, stop your ordinary socializing. That they may be ashamed because it is a punishment that could swallow up a person if it were not undone in due time. And when will we undo it? When we see the godly sorrow and repentance shown in 2 Corinthians 7. The words of Jonathan are ended. Thank you very much for your kind attention. May we all labor to keep this church in unity of spirit and of mind and of one judgment in such things. And may the Lord grant repentance to those that need it and bring us all to a place of holy living in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.